Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 63 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose aligned and performance proven leaders. Speaking of, today our guest is Andrew D'Angelo. Andrew is in the cannabis, is a cannabis, cannabis industry uh, consultant, strategy advisor, co-founder of Harvardside, where he spent 13 years and co-founder of The Last Prisoner Project. Andrew is an amazing pioneer in so many ways in the cannabis industry. I feel so lucky. Last week, I got to interview Keith Strope, who was very instrumental in, uh, in the cannabis industry and in protecting users of cannabis for many, many years. And this week, I get Andrew D'Angelo. Andrew, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast. Nice to be with you today, Max. Awesome. Well, I'm going to start out with a softball question to get some momentum going, which you probably don't need uh, because you're so, you have such good positive energy uh, regardless. But when did you know your life mission was going to involve the cannabis plant? Well, for those of your listeners who may not know, Steve D'Angelo is my older brother. And Steve was a great guide and um, person to introduce me to cannabis. Not many people have the opportunity to have that teacher and that guide. So I pretty much knew when he first turned me on to cannabis, this was going to be in my life. This was 1983, 1984, and I'm a teenager. I'm in high school. And um, I pretty much knew it was going to be in my life. And I started trading in cannabis right away (laughs) Uh, when I was in high school and quickly learned that not only did that allow me to have access to more and different types of cannabis by being in the trade and better cannabis. Uh, But I also was able to supplement my my income. And in those days, you know, I I didn't know that it was going to be my career and that was going to be the the lion's share of the money I've made in my life has been trading cannabis or consulting for for others that trade in cannabis. But but that's the way it turned out. And um, so, and I'm glad it did. It worked out really good. So I, I knew pretty early that cannabis was going to be in my life every day. I, it took a little while and really legalization was key to this because I hated being in the un- illicit market, underground market, legacy market. I did not like that. It, it, I didn't like being hunted <laughs> and, and hiding from the world uh, and not being able to be share but I do it for a living with (laughs) people I want to go out with or, you know, any types of mainstream activities I might want to do. It was really difficult in those days. So I didn't like that. So legalization allowed me. And also it's really hard to develop yourself as a leader in the underground. It's very difficult to develop yourself as a leader. You do develop yourself as someone who can hide their leadership from everybody else. But that's a different skill, right? That's a different skill. So, um, so I knew pretty early on. And your brother is, is that ten years older than you? About ten years, yeah. About ten years. I mean, so when you're young, was did he kind of? Because I have an older brother too, who's only two years older than me, and he was always like kind of wanting to keep me away from that, from you know these types of things back then. 
but was he ever protective in that way or what was the relationship like? No, my brother was a 100% committed cannabis activist and truth teller from the time he got turned on when he was a teenager. So my brother never hid the fact that he was in the cannabis trade. And because my parents were divorced, my brother helped um, supplement my mom's in income with, with, with cannabis sales because my mom was a homemaker for 20 years and then she was out in the workforce and whoa, it's <laughs> hard to make a living and raise a child that way, even with a little bit of help from child support and alimony. But so my brother had that both responsibility and burden that he had to carry. And, and so it, he wasn't going to hide it from me uh, or, or quote unquote, protect me. He told me the truth about it and tried to protect me from, uh, you know, law enforcement and things that might uh, jeopardize what my mom and he and I needed to do to make a living, you know. That's awesome. And did you have any brothers and sisters or is it just you too? We did have a brother. Tragically, he died when we were very young. I was an infant. My brother was about 12 years old um, when Daniel died. And again, that had a pretty big impact on our family. It's one reason me and my brother are so close and we've stuck together all these years is because of, of, of that tragedy that happened early in our childhood. Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. But it sounds like it has just get, gotten you guys closer together as a unit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When something like that happens to a family, it, it well, it changes a family, of course. And my parents' marriage wasn't able to survive that, among other things. <laughs> but um, uh, I, 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 you know, you, you learn to honor your brother and, and, and love the one that's still left. And that, that's, that's what we decide to do. And not without sacrifice. My brother made a lot of sacrifices for me, and I've made a lot of sacrifices for my brother. And you know, we both could have gone off without on sep in our separate directions without making those sacrifices and in, in some ways perhaps have gotten more done or achieved more things or had a different kind of life, you know, that was a little bit more self-centered and self-interested. Um, but, but we decided that those sacrifices were worth it. Awesome. Well, tell, I'm going to switch directions just a little bit, not, not much, because uh, this is all part, part of your story for sure. But tell, tell me or tell us and the, the audience listening, what was it like uh, opening Harborside, one of the first dispensaries in the U.S.? And was it the first dispensary in the U.S.? I know there was a handful of licenses in California handed out at the same time. So I, I was doing some research and I never really pinpointed whether it was actually the first dispensary open or not. So was it? And then, you know, obviously it's it, not really it's trivial at this point. It was one of the first and still you're a pioneer and trail, trailblazer. Um, Harborside was one of the first licensed dispensaries. So to give everybody a little hipstery lesson here, um, California voters legalized medical in 1996. What, but the state legislature did not regulate cannabis in 1996. They were too afraid to touch it. It was too controversial. Um, so they punted to the local people while the local people basically banned it all throughout the whole state. Nobody regulated it. And and you couldn't quite ban it because the state law said you could have it. And, 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 and but people, if you didn't want it in your community, you just bust them um, or you get the feds to bust them. Um, um, but Oakland wasn't going to bust legal medical dispensaries, but they had too many unlicensed ones open up and it became hard for them to manage. So 
they shut them all down and issued the first, I think it was four or six licenses. They had a cap at four or six, I think it was. Um, and, and then um, we applied for one of those and, and we got them in 06. But yeah, there were dispensaries as early as I think 1997, right after the law passed, Dennis Perona always had his dispensary even before the law passed. Dennis Perona was one of the activists passed the law for those of you that don't know. And, um, and the Berkeley Patients Group is one of the oldest uh, dispensaries in California. And they've been around since the 90s as well. And a bunch of other caregiver models are still around, like um, uh, the, the uh, oh, there's this women's collective in Santa Cruz. WAM is what they're called. I forget all the letters of the acronym, but I think it's women's association for medical marijuana or something like that and um and wham was one of the first ones uh, to also be open and serve the community so so but we were one of the first licensed ones and as all of you know who do this having a license is a whole different thing than not having one <laughs> um and there's a lot more rules a lot more regulations that you have to follow and a lot harder to create a business model for instance, you can't, we couldn't have any consumption on site uh, with the license model, whereas Berkeley Patients Group in an unlicensed model was able to have uh, on site consumption. So, so that's just one example of, of the kind of rule that, 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 that we had to live with on the licensing side. But Steve and the rest of the team and, and myself, we had a great vision for Harborside and you know the people really responded to it and the patients really responded to it. And we we became quite busy and grew quite quickly. And talk a little bit about that vision. I mean, the, some of the, like how you guys, you know, right away, you guys were giving back to the communities. We'll get into the uh, last prisoner project, of course, at some point in this, but you started writing, having people write letters for either discounts or for weed, uh, which I think is fascinating that from the very beginning where you guys were rooted, I mean, talk about some of the things that, you know, kind of made you guys you, and, it, and it, was it a nonprofit to start? Uh, the way it worked in California and the year we opened, which was 06, was um, Jerry Brown was the attorney general and he had issued guidelines. They weren't laws, but they were guidelines. And one of the guidelines stipulated that all of the dispensaries had to be operated as if they were a nonprofit, um, because you, of course, can't get federal nonprofit status if you're medical cannabis dispensary or even an adult use cannabis dispensary. So, and we took that nonprofit mandate very seriously. And we, we saw it as an opportunity to do things with the revenue. We knew we were going to sell a lot of weed. We knew that at that time, the price of weed was higher than it is now. Um, uh, um, well, yes and no. It was higher on than it is now on the wholesale level. It was lower on the retail level because the taxes were non-existent except for a local tax that we had to pay. But um, so now the retail prices are a lot higher and that's a big problem in California. We can talk about that a little different, but th this, this nonprofit model, we saw as an opportunity to take some of the revenue we we're going to make and invest it into the community. And one of the programs we had was the Patient Activist Resource Center. And that was where you write a letter to a prisoner or you can write a letter to an elected official and talk about, do an activism letter. 
And in exchange for that letter, we'd give you a voucher that would give you a gram of free medicine. We also had a care package program. So if you were low income, and basically all you had to show us to qualify was that you're on some kind of public assistance. And you would get a free gram and a half of flour every week. And we had 500 people in that program every quarter, it rotated every quarter. Well, in the beginning, we had a lot more than that. <laughs> there came a point we had to put a cap on it, but we had, um, it got a little out of control um, uh, um, as altruism will do sometimes. But, um, uh, but it was a lot of fun to, to help that many people. And then, and then we had every patient that signed up as a member, got a tour of the facility, um, got learned about the products on that tour, got educated on the tour. So hopefully, so they didn't have to get educated over and over again um, by the bud tenders, or we called them sales associates. And we had a lot of money we gave to charities. We did food drives, coat drives. Um, we made sure our employees had retirement benefits and um, good health care benefits. We we tried to give our employees, we gave our employees a 40% discount on the products, which was basically selling them at cost to them. And, you know, all of these things we did because of that nonprofit mandate that the, the, the attorney general had. And we had a blast doing that. And I wish that in, in some ways, I wish that that not the prop the the spirit behind what we were doing was more prevalent in the industry today as as we've emerged out of the medical and nonprofit model and into the adult use for profit model, not just in California but all over. Yeah, and and we'll we'll definitely get into some of that. I can't wait to talk about that. You were in my first call with you. Uh, I loved how you're like, hey, let's let's talk about the things that are the challenges, which we'll get into for sure. But going back to when you started Harborside, I mean, you guys were, I mean, you had some some you know some you, you had some vision. I mean, there there are even the little things of uh, I think I read about child resistant packages, and you guys you know kind of starting that, just becoming aware, like, hey, you make it look like it's you know a piece of candy. A child. So you, you had some forethought and some, some yeah, lab testing, up. lab testing was another one that we pioneered. My brother pioneered. Um, my brother's a visionary. That's really what he is. If you, if you asked him to describe himself in one word, that's what he would say. And so he, he applied a lot of vision. And of course I worked with him on it. Other people worked with him on it and refined it. We learned from our community too, who came into the dispenser. They, we're not shy about telling us what they liked and what they didn't like. And, and we tried to make the necessary pivots as any business does when they hear from their community. And we had a blast doing that. And I think, you know, we won awards. I mean, we, we won all these awards for, for food bank work because we would literally um, raise tons of food would be donated through our dispensary because what we would do is if you donate it six cans or more of food, we'd give you a voucher for a free gram of wheat. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had a contest that whoever donated the most cans would get an ounce of wheat. Uh, and I'm telling you, we generated pallets and pallets and pallets and pallets full of canned foods and packaged foods for, for the hungry through that program. And then when 
the regulations change and we weren't allowed to give away vouchers of free weed anymore, then we had a really hard time collecting anywhere near. I think we collected maybe 5% of the canned food that, that, that we had previously. So there were some things we were able to do, as you said, by applying our creativity and, and, and vision that were super important to the community. You know, prisoners would come after they got our letters and they'd get out of prison and they would come with the letters and they would just thank us and say, this saved me when I was locked up. Thank you. And so there's no, and, and not to mention all the sick people we helped, including children with epilepsy. I was the first cannabis leader to give a child with epilepsy a tincture. And I did on national television. <laughs> so um, those are, of course, the, the, the constituents we were most concerned about were the patients and, and people that were really sick. So we helped, I don't know, tens of thousands. And to this day, there are patients that go into Harborside and, and, and get their medicine there, even though it's, it's no longer exclusively a medical program. So awesome. So awesome. Talk to me about the, the way you view uh, being an activist. Like I actually, it made me understand uh, and take a little bit more power in my position. And cause we obviously work in, in higher C level folks in the cannabis industry. I never really thought about, I, I read something that about you or was listening to something about you, but how do you view like, who's an activist? Who do you consider an activist in the industry, cannabis industry? everybody has to be an activist in the cannabis industry. And that's one of the problems that I'm seeing in the industry right now is we're not seeing enough activism, especially in C-suites. So, and especially with investors and shareholders, those folks are activists um, averse because it's risky and they don't like to take those kinds of risks and it's costly and they don't like to take on those kinds of costs. But Look, we're emerging from 100 years of prohibition. We have our prisons are filled with cannabis people, most of them black and brown. There's all kinds of issues with all the frameworks all over the world with, with legalization. There's all kinds of issues with injustice and equity and all these big issues that are, are we're all talking about in the industry right now. I hope we're all trying to get them right. I don't think all of us are. But only by discussing them and talking about them and, I don't know, for lack of a better word, shaming people <laughs> into being an activist um, is the only way we're going to create a new kind of industry. We, we don't want to look back 20 years from now and say, oh, yeah, we minted a few billionaires and they have most of the industry now and F everybody else. Um, that's what happened. And we don't want that. We don't want to look back and say, be the same as alcohol or tobacco or big tech. We want to be different than that. And we have an opportunity to be different than that. It's a sacred opportunity because millions of people's lives and millions of years of people's lives got locked up for this plant. And we're emerging from that. So, so we have to get the frameworks right, right. We have to spread the wealth around, particularly to those communities who suffered the most from the war on weed. And we have to all work together to understand that it takes an ecosystem of small, medium and large companies all working together to create a market that is 
innovative, has the best products that all of us can create, that winners and losers will learn how to do what they do best and that the market will sort itself out on that level. But we can't let, um, we can't let the cannabis industry turn into all the other industries. We really have to, and all the other industries, I hope, I pray, I'm working hard every day <laughs> to uh, will learn from us and, and say, wow, look what those cannabis people did. Maybe we ought to do some of that. Be, and, and that's, I hope we can serve as a beacon and not just us. There's, you, you, you can name great companies, Patagonia. You can make, name great companies that are activist companies that also make money and, you know, and do a lot of good in the world. And, and, and that's the new capitalism. It can't be shareholder, shareholder, shareholder. It has to be community, community, community. And one of the people in that community or one of the stakeholders in that community are shareholders. God, I love that. I love that you point that out. Uh, the, the industry is so great and, and there's so much potential, but you're right. We need to really make sure everybody uh, takes their position as an activist and uh, we take advantage of the, uh, you know, of the, the current that we have going. Um, so that is amazing. And I love, you know, the, the last prisoner project, which we'll get into a little bit. Uh, I love how you can point out, Hey, you don't, you don't have to do anything. That's, you know, that if you want to do it privately, you can write a letter to somebody, become a pen pal with somebody in prison and make their day and give them a lifeline. And uh, so that there, you can do as little as that, or obviously donate money and, and help do bigger things than that and help legally, you know, hire attorneys and, and do bigger things. But to, to, let's, let's jump into the last prisoner project. Cause I think this can help people, or at least it, it helped me a little bit when I was listening, like there's people got to know how they can be an activist in order to be an activist. So, you know, on the, the easy side, let's talk about the easy side and let's talk about, you know, some bigger, you know, activism projects and, and things that, you know, the last prisoner projects doing and just people in general are doing, but let's jump into that and, and talk about like what the, what you can do from as far as writing letters to, to, to more. Sure. Well, the last prisoner project is an organization. My brother and I co-founded with some great friends and other people and a few years ago now it's it's been it took us about a year to get our 501c3 status and we've been at it about two years since then and our mission is very simple it's not super broad it only applies to cannabis prisoners and that is to get them all out get their records expunged and, and get folks reintegrated into society and hopefully with employment in the cannabis industry so that's what we work on. The, the last part of that, the employment in the cannabis industry requires a lot more funding than we've been able to raise yet to create the kind of programs we envision to um, make that happen. But, but we're doing it on a much smaller scale. And a lot of our constituents that we've already gotten out of prison work in the industry or work for us. Many of them work for us. And so I'm, I'm proud that as last prisoner project has grown we've hired quite a few former prisoners that that are, are working for us now so and as you mentioned being an activist is hard it it, it requires a lot of commitment you got to be pissed off <laughs> or angry or hurt by something pretty deeply to motivate you to be an activist because it is risky and it is hard. 
it's and you'll beat your head against the wall for a long time maybe before you see a result that is anywhere close to your goal so I'll just say that to start out with for everybody, but, but we try to make it a little easier. So you can go to our website, lastprisonproject.org. I think it's slash get involved. It might be slash get active, one of those two. And you can learn how to write letter to a prisoner and you can see <clears throat> template letters. There's addresses and names of prisoners in a database. You can choose one to write to. You can also make a very small donation. A lot of our donors are $5, $10, $25. Happens, you know, I'd, I'd say 80% of our donors are, are small donors. And, and that's another good way uh, of doing it. If you're in the cannabis industry or you are a decision, making, uh, a decision maker in the cannabis industry, even better, we have programs for companies to participate with us. And that's where we raise the bulk of our money because as I mentioned, I, I believe we have, industry has an obligation to fund this. I, I think individuals has a, have obligations to fund this, but I, I think the industry has a particular obligation to, to fund this. So um, we have the Roll It Up for Freedom program, which is about giving your change when you're at a dispensary. You can give your, put your change in a bucket or you can do it electronically. And we have... I think 500 dispensaries now participating in that program. It's extraordinary. A year ago, we had 50. So it's, or maybe a little bit more than that, but not, not much more than that. And, and so it's grown in, a, in just amazing ways. The community's really responded. And, and we make it easy. We send you the box. We hook you up with the software that gets it on your thing. To, so we make it really easy for the companies. If you're a farmer or you're a cultivator or you manufacture some, a product, we have a partner for freedom program and that we give you a little logo you can put on your packaging that shows your customers that you support us. And we also give you some love on our website and our social media and invite you to our fundraisers and galas and that sort of thing. And um, we have certain companies that have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for that for us and our constituents through the partners for freedom program and then of course we we were putting together a high donor something we that's now called the freedom circle I, i'm hoping we <laughs> think of a better name um but um and this would be people that from the industry that donate six figures or more and we're also developing a program we might already have it developed but when somebody sells their company or somebody exits and they get, they do really good, we have a program that allows them to make a significant donation through, through that exit. And, and we will take shares. <laughs> um, if your exit is all in shares, we can take shares. And we just have to sell them right away and we can't hold on to them because we're not allowed to do that as a 501c3. And, um, and so those are a whole bunch of programs we have for industry. And, um, and you know, COVID's been brutal on our prison population and people have been locked down. People were locked down literally for a year and a half and could not see their family, could not receive any visitors. And were terrified that they were going to 
contract COVID and, and perhaps get really sick or die. I mean, getting really sick in prison is a terrible experience. Going to prison is a terrible experience. Um, prisons are torture chambers, really. And so um, that was really hard on, on our, our, our constituents that are still locked up. And so um, it couldn't be a more important mission right now. And, and to be clear, there's a lot of groups working on social justice in the cannabis space, lots of nonprofits working on expungement and getting people out. And there's the Weldon Project and there's cage-free cannabis and there's uh, all kinds of different folks that are doing it in addition to us. And they all are great missions and they all deserve our great support. So it's, it, and all of these groups are, are making it easier and easier to be active. It's one reason we start these organizations is, is, is so we can make it a little easier for folks that are pissed off or hurt or feel like they are motivated to get active to in fact get active. I love it. I love it. I mean, I, my team mentioned personally, they're interested in, uh, we are uh, professionally interested as a, in a company as well. And also you have uh, an event coming up. We started to talk about it before we went kind of on the air here. You've got an event at MJ BizCon with the Blue Brother, Blues Brothers, uh, correct? Yes, we are Thursday. I think that's the 21st or 22nd. Well, that Thursday night at the House of Blues in Las Vegas, the Blues Brothers with Jim Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, I think Dan Aykroyd, um, will be performing a set of music and we'll also have a couple of our constituents that we've released from prison briefly uh, address the audience everyone can see them and get to meet them and give them a round of applause and it's a fundraiser for our organization and i think it's going to be a lot of fun if no one's seen jim belushi he's also on our advisory board jim's a big supporter and if no one's seen him perform he's a great singer, dancer, performer. He has such a good time up there with Dan. Those guys are just rocking and rolling and the band is tight. And I just, the last time they played a couple of years ago at the Arcview group, um, it was just a fantastic show. Everybody was on the dance floor. So we're really looking forward to it. Yeah, I was, <clears throat> I was lucky enough to see him this summer at a uh, count, uh, cancer uh, fundraiser in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And you're right. I was, uh, pleasantly surprised on how great a show they put on. Um, so, uh, looking forward to that. It, let's continue and kind of down the road, like what's your, what's your opinion on how much progress we've made and just the overall stigma. I know we're kind of talking about, you know, how we can change and there's a lot of social justice to be had and, and where everybody, how everybody can help. But, how much progress have we made on the stigma that can the cannabis industry or cannabis users have had in the past? Do you think? Well, it's a great question. I think it's a really complicated answer. Of course, compared to where we were 50 years ago or 30 years ago, or perhaps even 20 years ago, we've made extraordinary progress, extraordinary progress. We have to be happy about that. We have to be proud of that, but we're also seeing some signs that we haven't made so much progress. So at the local level, almost everywhere cannabis is legal in the United States, the local people have control to ban cannabis dispensaries or any cannabis business. And we're seeing those bans. California's got 60% ban. Uh, Michigan's got 
I think 75% fan. Um, Colorado still has, I think, 30 or 40% fan. Um, same thing in Washington, Oregon. Um, so, so it's prohibition by minority rule <laughs> in these small little towns. And it, that's because of the stigma. Nobody wants, or I shouldn't say nobody, I should say a small minority, but very vocal minority of people do not want a dispensary in their neighborhood. They don't want their kids walking by it, driving by it, hearing about it, knowing about it. And they come out against it. I've been run out of Boston. I've been run out of Chicago in the early days of the medical program in both of those cities by local neighborhood groups who were opposed to having a harborside in their neighborhood. And we were not in like affluent, nice neighborhoods. I was in the south side of Chicago and I was in South Boston. These are hard scrapping, working class is a euphemism to describe these neighborhoods. And that's where we were trying to be. We wanted to bring the medicine to those communities. Still got run out of the neighborhood uh, by folks. And it didn't matter. I would go up there. I'd show PowerPoints. I'd show them videos of kids with epilepsy being healed by this, people with Alzheimer's being helped by this, and nothing. They still ran me out of town. So that's due to the stigma. That fight that I just described is happening all over the country in every small town. New Jersey just gave the local people the power to ban and most of the state is banned. So it's a big problem. And that's where the stigma is being very entrenched right now. It's just at that local level, that very hyper local level. Um, because if you can, and what, what those, I, I call them NIMBYs, right? Not in my backyard, but mm -hmm. the, the, what the NIMBYs don't get, don't understand is the weed is already in their neighborhood. It's all over their neighborhood. <laughs> it's in the legacy underground market, but it's all over their neighborhood. So what do you want to do? The people have legalized it at the state level overwhelmingly in most cases, overwhelming, more votes than any politician gets. What do you wanna do? You wanna license or you wanna just let it be in the legacy underground market? What do you wanna do? So, and, and, and that's, what, that's the big thing that these folks get wrong. And, and it's a shame because they're denying their, their sick, a value, very valuable medicine and they're denying their people good jobs. Yeah, and, and talking about the illicit and underground uh, market, you know, versus uh, the licensed market. Like when you guys opened Harborside, what percentage was the illicit versus underground? And then today, you, get, you know, I, if I'm going to trust somebody, uh, their percentages on, on this question, I'd probably trust yours as much as anybody. But what what is it? Just to give an idea for the, the listener that might not be entrenched in the business what is that percentage in this day and age well the 80 20 rule really applies to cannabis in all kinds of different ways i've found in my experience so i would say about 80 percent of the transactions 
maybe 75% in certain markets are still in the underground illicit market. And about 20, 25% are in the licensed legal market. It's been that way for quite some time in California. Maybe the medical market, we had a little bit more market share because prices were lower. We, we might've had more like 40% or maybe 30, but not that much be, be, because a lot of people didn't want to go get their medical note. They, went, they, they already had their connection. It wasn't broken. Why fix it? <laughs> um, and and, and, and the, the neighborhood dealer or trader, you have a bond of trust with them. Normally deeper than the bond of trust you have in most dispensaries. So I don't fault the consumers, right? I, I fault the frameworks because we have to get the legacy folks in. I'm, the reason I'm in the legal market is because as I mentioned, I didn't like being a criminal, but a whole bunch of people don't mind that. <laughs> um, and, you know, and they have to be incentivized to come in. And that, that means they have to, it has to be easier to get licenses and it has to be, we have to invest more in, in those communities getting in. And if we don't work harder to create one market that everybody is in, then we're gonna have the two market dilemma for a long, long time. And I don't, the longer that two market dilemma exists, the harder it is to create one market. California is going on year five with the two market dilemma. There is no end in sight out here. No end in sight. The illicit market still has 75%. That's um, crazy. And what, what, how does the tax situation affect that? I mean, clearly- Hugely. I mean, it's, it's not going the right direction in the tax, which is not helping it. No, I mean, it, 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 if you're smart, you don't tax cannabis at all or very little in the beginning. Then it goes up year three, year four, year five, year, not year, not month six. No, year three, year, give us a couple year head start so that we can at least on a price basis match the legacy underground market. We may not match the quality for a while. The legacy under McGraw market has some really good weed in it. Let's, yeah. not, let's not kid ourselves. These growers and these folks working with the plant, they've been doing it a long time in many cases or multi-generations. They really care about it and they're working really hard at it. So it's formidable. Um, and that's why we want to create an inclusive framework because you don't want to go to war with these folks. What are you going to do? Launch Prohibition 2.0? Oh, against the unlicensed operators and lock up the same people you locked up before. I mean, really, is, is that is that how we're going is, is to is that how this is going to play out? Um, that, that I, I don't think so. So so there's no choice. But in this moment that we're in right now, the elected officials are just so risk averse. They're so terrified of weed. They all they know, all they see is the dollar signs on the taxes. And so that's what they do. And they, they don't have a clue. They just figure, oh yeah, well, cigarettes are really expensive. We sell plenty of those. Um, or alcohol is expensive. We have high alcohol taxes. We, play, we sell plenty of that. If the weed people want legal weed, they're gonna have to pay the taxes. Well, no, they'll go to the other market and, they, and you won't get anything. You won't get anything. 
God, I've never looked at it in such a simple way like that. That is, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. I've never looked at it from what are we supposed to do? Punish them. And, you know, again, uh, so there's gotta be a, a more diplomatic way, which is probably lower the taxes and get people in and then, you know, slowly at least raise it. So it's, you know, it's, uh, something uh, like that. Look, we're not going to get it right the first time, but we can get it a lot less wrong. And, and, and these frameworks, <laughs> They can't be locked in stone and impossible to change, like we've seen in California. Impossible to change. Impossible. Yeah, it I think took them a war this legislative session just to allow companies to give each other free samples in the supply chain. It was a war to get that. Now you try lowering the tax in Sacramento. <laughs> See what happens to you. Um, you'll get destroyed. And we've tried it for four or five years now, and, and all the bills have died. We've been destroyed. The industry representative have been destroyed. Why? Because they're not well-funded. And, you know, until the really big people in the industry and the investors and the C-suites and all those folks decide to do this, then it'll get done. But the problem is a lot of those folks are using bad frameworks to build moats around their businesses and to keep legacy people out. <laughs> Let them have the underground market. We're fine with 20 or 25%. We've got scale. We're making money. You know, F you. <laughs> so, and that's the wrong attitude to have. And that's where you have to have government intervene and not allow that to happen. Yeah. And speaking of government, how can we not get, you know, either party really hasn't gotten on board with cannabis completely. In fact, I saw an infographic yesterday and it showed 49% of Democrat, 49% of consumers are, are Democrat and 45% are Republicans, which shows you it's almost perfectly even. So what are we, what are we fighting about? I mean, everybody, they're equal percentage of users. Why can't the politicians get this right? Why can't we get at least one party on board, move this thing forward faster? I don't know. It's a mystery to me too, Max. I don't, I, it's, 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 it's so frustrating and infuriating. Anyone who reads my columns, you'll see me just railing on both major political parties because, you know, it's terrible the way we're being treated by them. And not to mention what's going on at the federal level, which is just awful. It's just awful the way we're being treated with 280E and with banking and with all this stuff, not, not to mention continued prohibition and people in prison and all the rest of it. It's, 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 it's just terrible what's happening um, uh, at the federal level, too. So, you know, I don't know what it's going to take. Um, the, the, the public has weighed in on this, that voters are clearly want legalization. And by overwhelming majorities, even adult use is at 60 plus percent now in all the polls. Nobody gets 60 percent. Nobody gets 60 percent. Nothing gets 60 percent in this divided country we're in right now. That's a landslide. Medical's 90 percent. Nothing gets 90 percent except, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what is the last thing in this country that got 90 percent. I'm not sure you could get the sky is blue at 90% or the earth is round at 90%, but you've got uh, medical legalization at 90%. And still the politicians just, and it's because 
the voters, even cannabis voters like perhaps you and me, most of us are that it's just we're not we're not moving elections. Uh, and until we prove that we're moving elections, and I think we are moving elections, but we it's really hard for us to prove that we're moving elections. And until we prove it with the politicians, um, they may not be too keen on listening. And it and if we don't fund the politicians more, and this goes back to the the C-suites and the companies funding, you have to give politicians money. This is, it's a pay to play system. I don't like it. I didn't make it. I didn't invent it, but that is the system. I want to change it. I want to dismantle it, but the Supreme court has ruled on this. It's a pay, pay to play system. And if you don't pay, you ain't going to play. And isn't that the truth? And you have a you have a lot of experience in this. So he, having hearing you say and talk about these challenges uh, mean a lot. I, I appreciate you sharing them because uh, you know some of one of the things we haven't talked about is is you know how talk about your experience in uh, you know early on in Harborside and how involved you were in the, the kind of the politics side and, and the legislative side of things. Uh, to talk a little bit about that. Well, look, we we. I'm reluctant activist. I'm a reluctant operative. Now that weed's legal, we're operatives. We're not really activists anymore. But um, I don't like the work. It's frustrating. You can probably hear it in my voice. But um, but we have to do it. And so it's kind of like I don't like riding in airplanes because <laughs> lots of different reasons. But I still have to ride in them sometimes. So that's kind of the way this this work is and and so yeah at harborside we had to work with our city we had to work with our state um we had to make regulations better over time we had to try to get our insurance commissioner to work to make insurance companies comfortable insuring us and all kinds of different things like that you have to do over the weeks and months and years of of operating your cannabis business with a license so you just kind of learn how, how to do that and, and, um, and, and, and try to not spend so much time doing that, that you're not with your team and your customers and your supply chain and, and being excellent in those areas. Cause that's what we're doing this for, you know, not, not so much for the politics, but, but it, I can't do, I can't be an excellent business if I don't have the politics right. It's really hard to, you know, have one without the other. You've talked a lot about this, but looking back at this whole this whole ride through uh, Harborside and, and all the work that you're doing now, what's the hardest thing that you've been through? What's the, like the one thing that you look back and say, that was the hardest part of all of this? Oh, well, that's really easy. You know, Harborside is not my company anymore. And I'm not employed by Harborside anymore. I'm still a shareholder, of course, but I would like Harborside to be my company. <laughs> and I would like Harborside to, to, I still would like to be going in there every day and working with the team. But um, we went public at exactly the wrong time. And we took a bath and our investors took a bath. And just like everybody in the public markets up there uh, in Canada has taken a bath. <laughs> including the biggest companies. 
-hmm. And many of them took worse baths than we did. But when you take a bath and investors take a bath, it's really hard to keep control of your company. So that was the hardest thing by far uh, along the whole journey because we didn't really fundamentally do anything bad or wrong as leaders. We just had some really bad timing. And the fact that we were activists hurt us because we had a big case with the federal government regarding IRS tax code 280E. And it was a big liability on our balance sheet to the tune of, well, it ended up being a lot less than $30 million. But at the, at, at, at the time that we were trying to raise money, it was estimated to be as high as $30 million. And, and so investors really used that to squeeze us. And it, it's one reason we had to go public um, because we, 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 it was, we had to deal with this liability and we had to deal with it in a way that was sustainable for the organization, the company. And going public was, we thought at the time, uh, the best way of doing that. So I learned a lot from all the, those experiences and, um, and, and of course did a lot of things right for many, many years with Harborside and, and grew it into, I don't know, when I left, I think we were doing $65 million a year in revenue. We had four shops, a big farm, a manufacturing brand, and a whole bunch of up and coming leaders that I mentored. So I felt like we, I, I, to the extent that it was my responsibility to leave the organization in a good hands and in a good place. I think I did that. Yeah. But, but that was the hardest part of, of, of the whole Harborside journey. Got it. And what flipping on the other side, what's the best thing going on in your life right now? Well, my life is divided into three categories. One is social justice. That's Last Prisoner Project. Last Prisoner Project's going amazingly well. We, we've gotten more people out of prison this year than any previous year. And we've raised more money this year than we have any previous year. And next year, we're going to be launching more programs, hiring more people than we ha- ever have any previous year. So the, the, that organization could not be building more momentum and it feels really good for me as a leader coming out of what I just described um, at the end of the Harborside experience to, to my very next organization that I built is, is now very successful. So that feels good. Um, my consulting businesses and my strategic advisory work is growing steadily. I've been at it. And it was not great that I launched that <laughs> a month before the pandemic hit. Uh, but, um, but I'm building the business. I've got a nice book of business now. I've got some clients I really love and some projects that are going to be really fun to get up on the ground. What I make people mainly come to me as soon as they get a license and they need to build the business up from, from the point of the license to basically the point of opening the business or sometimes getting the business in shape for an exit, just depending on what the business is. And then the third part of my life is my creative work and my writing and my thought leadership. And I have a big panel I'm doing at MJ Biz next month where it's called Clash of the Titans. Can cannabis culture and big business coexist? And it's on the very first day and I've got Swami on there and I've got Burner on there and I've got uh, Joe from Cureleaf, the CEO of Cureleaf on there. And there's gonna be a couple other 
uh, people on the panel that I, I, I'm still working on, I can't announce yet, but that's going to be a really fun conversation and I'm excited about that. And people can always read my columns on Forbes and go to my website, andrewdangelo.com and see what I'm doing creatively. And um, so it's really hard for me to say what's the most exciting of all of those three buckets. But, um, you know, I would say Last Prisoner Project is probably the thing that has the most momentum right now. I'm excited to get involved in that. I mean, just, just the conversation we've had today, if there's one thing that stood out to me and hopefully the listeners, that Last Prisoner Project, you guys absolutely crushed it. There's a lot of great organizations out there, but just just the... the you know, that it's, it, it's a commitment for whatever, whatever you want, just give back. If you believe in that, that you, you need to take part in, in social justice and jump on in. What's the, I mean, hopefully our, our listeners are smart enough to Google and find it, but what's the actual domain for last prisoner project, last prisoner Okay. Yep. Awesome. All right. Um, you know, a couple other things. I mean, what, what, just in thinking of the industry, like what kind of industry should, what other things should we be thinking about as we're uh, building industry? You've brought up a lot of awesome points here. So I'm not, uh, not diminishing any of those, but anything else that sticks out as we start to wrap up the conversation that we should be thinking about as we build this industry? Sure. I have tons of thoughts on that <laughs> that I haven't shared yet. Well, mainly I like to talk about leadership. So the way in which we lead our companies and the way in which we lead our teams and the way in which we lead our investors is critically important. And I believe, particularly in the post-pandemic, post-George Floyd world we're living in, that capitalism has got to change. And that means the way we lead companies has to change. And all this command and control leadership I see in the industry, not just the cannabis industry, but every industry, I think fundamentally needs to change. And it's harder to lead like a gardener than to lead like a general. It's easier to bark orders of people than to get in the trenches with them and actually support them and listen to them and let them make decisions. That's harder. But I think that's where we're moving as a culture, as a society, as a world, particularly with the new generations of leaders and workers that are coming up behind me. Those folks are just not going to be pushed around. <laughs> and um, they're just not going to be abused. And they're, they want to make decisions. They want to lead themselves. They are smart. They are connected. They know how to communicate. They, um, and so if you don't empower folks, it's, 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 and it's really problematic. Uh, and that's why we're seeing so much churn in the cannabis industry at the highest levels. Just my, my previous company, Harborside, they're churning through people over there at the highest levels. They, they just, you know, let go the latest interim CEO. And now they have a new interim CEO and God only knows when they'll get a real CEO. And it's, it's because of this, culture and environment where everything is about doing what I say, not discovering what is the right thing to do together. And so I want to see a lot more of that kind of leadership in the industry. I want to see a lot more support for teams and frontline. See, the cannabis industry, it's a plant that grows out of the ground. You make things out of it and you distribute it to people in licensed facilities that are 
either retail or delivery. It's a people business. It's not like some software you make, you know, one time you sell it to a billion people and it's the same thing over and over and over again. It's different. It's people driven. And if you just smash people in the kneecaps with a baseball bat every single day and that's your work environment, it's going to be really unpleasant for the customers too, because you walk into the facility and you can feel it. You can feel it. And, um, and so I'm seeing too much of that command and control uh, leadership. And I, I want to see a lot more supportive leadership. I want to see a lot more people leading like a gardener. Uh, our job is to create the conditions for our teams to make decisions and to make good decisions. Our job is to develop people so that, there comes a time when I've, if I've done my job right, I have to go get another job, unless it's my company that I founded, like Harborside. But if I'm just a COO in a company, my job is to replace myself eventually. And, and then I move on and maybe I'm a CEO next time uh, if I do that well. Or maybe I'm chairman of a board next time or chairperson of a board next time. I move up. I'm, I've demonstrated that I can replace myself. And, and that's really where we need to be. Uh, and, and, and it's not something we should be afraid of. Uh, and good leaders should not be afraid of that um, because it's, it's, there's always the great thing about being a leader is that the world always needs you somewhere. And, one of the reasons I started a nonprofit after Harborside was it's harder to lead a nonprofit. It's harder to lead people that you can't pay as well as you can in the private sector and that you're, you're managing a lot of volunteers, whether it be at the board level or wherever else, everybody's a volunteer except our paid staff, you know, but all of our board members are volunteers and many, many people who work for Harborside are volunteers. So Managing and leading volunteers and, and, and that kind of organization is, presents a different challenge. And it's been one that I was a little bit used to because we had the nonprofit framework for the medical with Harborside, but, but I wasn't a 501c3 with Harborside and I am now Last Prisoner Project. So it really teaches you a lot of different skills as a leader to, 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 man, to lead a nonprofit. And it, and the world needs it, right? And, and, and so when we get people out of prison and you get to meet them and look in their eye and give them a hug and say, welcome home, that feels good. And that feels good as a leader. And so I, I, that, that's what I, I'd like to see more of uh, in the industry. And, and maybe it's just a moment we're having right now, but kind of the soul of the cannabis industry, there's a battle for it right now, right? And um, and we've talked a lot about that already today, but, but I hope that the good guys win. <laughs> no, you're, you're like, you're, you're, you're basically, whoops, sorry for all the noise. You're basically preaching from the gospel of Y scouts. I mean, we're a purpose-based leadership search firm. We identified cannabis, you know, a few years into our journey and our sites are set uh, because we believe it needs purpose-driven leaders to basically take it to where it needs to go. So yeah, that's a great way of putting it purpose-driven leaders. I also say meaningful companies, right? Um, and yeah, I'm so pleased to know that about you. 
No, it's great. I, I think one thing that's interesting is I, I think it's so ripe, uh, no pun intended, we're using all these terms that you know, are uh, you know, relevant in, in growing weed, but it's so ripe for building purpose-driven companies, yet we don't see to this date many purpose-driven companies that have emerged, that have really set themselves apart, that everybody's like, shit, I want to go work for that company because of what they're doing and, and how they're doing it. We just... It's crazy where we haven't seen it quite yet. I know we will, but it's just, we haven't seen it yet. I mean, is there any companies out there that you can point to that are super purpose-driven in the cannabis industry right now? Oh, well, <clears throat> sure. I mean, most of them are small. You know, Swami Select is a regenerative farm in California. Bird Valley Organics. Uh, um, Ocean-grown extracts is growing weed in an old prison and, and one of the big supporters of Last Prisoner Project. Um, Ascend, Ascend Wellness has donated almost a million dollars uh, through the Roll It Up for Freedom program uh, to Last Prisoner Project, big, huge company. Um, and, and, and they've been an incredible partner uh, for us. And in fact, um, the CEO of Ascend is our first Freedom Circle member. Um, so, um, so we're Abner. Abner is our first Freedom Circle member, and awesome. so and, and so um, there are you know lots of companies that that I, I, I that have some kind of purpose driven division, <laughs> mm -hmm. but then the, uh, there are a lot of purpose driven smaller companies you know um, that are are owned and operated by legacy people or black and brown people or just community people. And, um, and, 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 and there's still quite a bit of, of those folks out there. Um, but, but it's, it's really hard right now because it's part of it, part of the, the soul of the battle for the soul of the industry. And some of the things you're seeing with non-purpose driven activity, that's really greed driven, um, is because we're having this domino effect from bad frameworks, right? So, when you have all these bad frameworks, it makes the weed a lot more expensive to produce and to sell. Well, that means you're much more reliant on investors. Investors want their money. And they demand that the organization be transactional, not purpose-driven. And that's the domino effect we're seeing all the way through. Now, there are impact investors who are just now starting to come into cannabis. Impact investors generally don't want to be the very first people to invest in an industry or a product, or they like to be second or third or fourth because they're already doing risky stuff with their money. They don't want to lose it. <laughs> they want to make sure that they have impact, and you can't have impact if you invest in a company that fails. So. Um, but we're starting to see that come in a little bit. There's a great nonprofit, another nonprofit I'm on the advisory board called Regenibus, and they're all about sustainability in the cannabis industry. And they're trying to put together an impact fund that's going to uh, raise a whole bunch of money. And there are a few other impact funds I know that are being worked on out there in the industry. So I think we'll start to see more purpose-driven capital come in and then that might sort of weaponize purpose-driven leaders and purpose-driven missions to and visions to start 
happen anymore. But it's just so hard to make these companies profitable that how do you make them purpose driven at the same time? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've actually have we have uh, we're lucky we have Patrick from uh, Genovis coming up on the podcast. So we'll jump into the sustainability and kind oh, of how great. Gonna... Yeah, no, Patrick's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. Well, unfortunately, I, I give I, I can't wait to spend more time with you, uh, especially with the uh, MJ BizCon's coming up. I'll make sure to come to uh, to the the panel that you're uh, that you're leading uh, leading and we'll spend some more time together. Uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to close this out and then I'm going to give you the last word. So you've been listening to the built on purpose podcast, uh, brought to you by Y scouts. You can find all of our future podcasts and past podcasts at yscouts.com. And Andrew, I'm going to give you the last word and we'll finish up here. And, uh, you can't say how much I appreciate your time and, and all your energy in this conversation. Well, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for allowing me to pontificate as much as I have on this. You know, I guess my last word since Y Scouts is all about leadership is, you know, um, I'm always, I love leaders and I love mentoring leaders and I love talking to leaders and I love interacting with leaders. So anybody listening or in your organization that wants to engage me, please reach out. You can email me at andrew at andrewdangelo.com. I have a passion for leadership and I'm, I'm really interested in seeing uh, and working with uh, up and coming leaders. Awesome. I know I said I was going to give you the last word, but we'll uh, we'll put some content together, too, and, and do some cool stuff. So I, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, Max. Thank All you right. for having me. Thanks a lot, man. Look forward. We'll, we'll get this out and uh, we'll, we'll end the, the recording now. But. Uh, we'll get this out, man. I can't wait to see you. I'm glad our paths crossed and, uh, this is going to be great. It was awesome meeting you and thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to produce this podcast and continue, uh, continue our uh, relationship and, and doing some cool shit. Right on. Talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 right here on Star Worldwide Networks or wherever you get your podcasts.